As a wave of organizing explodes across Starbucks locations nationwide following initial victories in Buffalo, the company is desperately trying to thwart the union by illegally firing employees who are involved. As the class struggle continues to heat up nationwide, corporations are attempting to trample on the right to organize at the workplace. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. And there's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, let's start off by talking about the Starbucks workers. I mean, an absolute explosion, a wave of Starbucks workers across the country organizing after two stores in Buffalo successfully filed for and won a union election. Starbucks clearly very, very afraid of this. They're firing workers in Tennessee, about a third of its total workforce at a location in Memphis. Starbucks Workers United has said this is outrageous. This is union busting. And probably this is a sign of what's to come, the fierce struggle that Starbucks is going to put up to prevent their workers from exercising their legal right to organize and bargain collectively. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it seems to me that this is another chapter in a long history, which is exactly as old as capitalism itself. It is testimony to the fact that deep down in the core of this economic system is an implacable conflict. Capitalists can make more profits the less they pay to their workers. And workers' quality of life depends on getting more out of the capitalist than the capitalist wants to pay. Consequently, there is a conflict. It always struck me that there's an attempt to deny this all the time, to look at the relationship between the employer and the employee as if it was one of working together for their mutual benefit. Well, there's an element of that. They are all involved in getting those 
hot dogs out there and to the public or making the software programs. But the presence of ways they cooperate should never blind us to the ways in which they conflict with one another, burden one another, attack one another, because that's at least as important in shaping our lives. So, for example, we are now seeing across the United States an absolute upsurge in workers conflicting with their employers. Over the last summer, for example, huge employers, John Deere Tractors, Kellogg a Corporation that makes breakfast cereals and so on, came into major conflicts, sending tens of thousands of workers off the job, taking that extraordinary step that you know workers take only with reluctance, because when they strike, they don't get paid. Let's be very clear. That's a real burden on people who are working class, who mostly live from week to week, from paycheck to paycheck. If they go out on strike, you know they have a very profound grievance. They've kind of come to the end of the road because they're taking a step that whether it may or may not succeed will certainly hurt their pocketbook big time if they actually go on strike the way the workers at Starbucks may very well have to do in order to win recognition. Here's another way to understand it. For much of the early history of capitalism, the capitalists were successful in making the organization of a union illegal, the existence of a union illegal. It was only in the 20th century, the last century, less than 100 years ago, that it became legal for workers to bargain collectively to have a union. It took even longer to get the right you referred to, namely the right to organize a union on the workplace and to make it illegal for an employer to use the fact that you're trying to get workers together as a basis for firing you. Of course, all that meant to the employer was that you'd have to come up with some other reason, which you can see the Starbucks Corporation doing again in justifying firing people who were active in unionization for some other reason, real or imagined, and you can make your guess as to which it is. So all we're seeing now is workers saying once again, as they have periodically across the history of capitalism, that the conflict has now become the dominant part of the relationship, not the cooperation, the conflict buried at the core of capitalism. They feel they're being ripped off. They feel they're being abused. They feel they're being denied a reasonable income for the work that they do and for the life this society promised them from their childhood would be available to them if they took a job. And I think that is the profound 
uh, reality, and we can see it across the board. That's why millions of people are quitting jobs in a way we haven't seen for a long time in this country, and that's been going on now for half a year. That's why we're seeing strikes, as I mentioned before, and that's why we're seeing unionization efforts all over the place, including at Starbucks, but likewise at Amazon warehouses and all kinds of other places where workers are saying we've had enough. And if I could add a historical note, it's interesting that this is happening at the end of two years when we were all bottled up in our homes, except, of course, for those of us that are homeless, bottled up in our homes trying to avoid COVID-19. I think it was a shock for the American people for the half of the American working class that experienced some unemployment over the last two years, this was a wake-up call. Look at your life. Look at the situation you're in. Look how close illness or death comes to you, to those around you, to your family, your friends, your co-workers. You know, when you're shaken up by that, as we all have been, that's when you ask questions about your normal life, because it better be satisfying, it better be good, because it could end at any time, and you're kind of reminded about that. And so when you go back to your job, after you're out, because of the COVID, because of the shutdown economy, because of the poor way, particularly here in this country, that we as a society dealt with COVID, having more deaths per person than almost any other country in the world. Wow. You're coming as a person with new eyes. You're looking at that same job you had, but you're looking at it and asking, is this a reasonable way to live? And the American working class, to its credit, is saying, no, this is not acceptable. Treated this way, paid this poorly, denied the benefits I need, schedules I need. I have a life, you know, it's not just this job. These kinds of basic human demands are fueling this drive at Starbucks and everywhere else, and it's not about to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there are so many different demands being raised and they they really, you know, span a wide range from pay, benefits, hours, but also to that question of basic human dignity and respect and to be able to have some kind of democratic input at the workplace. I'm here in Philadelphia. There are four Philly Starbucks stores that are participating in the organizing drive so far, at least those that have publicly announced their participation in this drive. Liberation News interviewed one of those workers. Their name is Tiernan, a Starbucks worker in Philadelphia involved in the drive. And they said, while any of us are on the job, we spend a third of our lives working at what equates to localized dictatorships, where we have no say about our pay, benefits, or hours while we're compelled to work. Fighting for a union is the answer to the question of whether we want to spend a third of our lives just doing what we're told and keeping our mouths shut or having control over this third of our lives with a democratic voice 
to be heard. I mean, that's a whole other dimension of union organizing, isn't it? There's what you get, right? I mean, how how badly, how brutally are you exploited by your boss? But also, are you treated like a human being when you're at work? Exactly. You know, and for me, the way I look at the world, I think it's an enormous step up that that worker that you just quoted to us understands and is willing and able to say it so clearly and even poetically. You know, most of us want to believe that we are supporters, advocates, champions of democracy with a little d, of the notion that if you are affected by a decision, then you are entitled to participate in making it. You know, it's the logic that underlies if there's a politician like the mayor of the town you live in or the governor or the president or any in between, since the decisions those individuals make impact your life one way or another, then you and I have the right to participate, as in voting so that a person who makes decisions impacting us that we don't approve of can be voted out of office on the next election. That's at least some democratic control. But when you cross the threshold in a capitalist economic system, you cross that threshold into the office or the store or the factory where you work, You lose all your democratic rights. That employer can say to you, go over there, stand there, sit there, work with this equipment, work on those raw materials, work at this pace. Don't go to the bathroom except once or twice a day, and you can't stay there more than three or four minutes. I mean, all the things that all employers in varying combinations do, you have no rights You don't control these rules. You don't vote on these rules. You have a simple choice. Accept them or leave. Leave without your job. Leave without your income. Plunge all the people who depend on you, elderly, children, spouse, into all kinds of crisis and difficulty. And what else can you then do? Go and try to find a job with another employer who will have the same dictatorial power. You know, it is a commitment to democracy that could, and maybe we're watching that, will in fact become the number one demand of people forming unions, people striking. We want to be in a democratic workplace. We don't want the absence of democracy in our workplace. That is as unacceptable as sexually harassing us or treating us as if we were slaves or literally buying and selling us. Those things are disallowed, and we've had to struggle for doing that, but now maybe the struggle has become we want a democratic workplace. And let me tell you, if that's where we're going, then the people that run this society should be very nervous because that's not a demand that a capitalist system can accommodate. In capitalism, there's the people who own and run the businesses who have always had all the power. And for them to give that up, to democratize the enterprise, to actually say, for example, 
one person, one vote, and we get together and we decide what we're going to produce, how we're going to produce it, where we're going to produce it, and how we're going to divide the fruits of our labor amongst ourselves to make it democratic, and that's what it would mean, that removes the capitalist from the story. Wow. Maybe that's the irony of ironies, that capitalism has so abused the working class, brought them to the point where they have taught them to demand something which amounts to the end of the system. It will be a kind of ironic coming to fruition of that famous remark of Karl Marx that in the end, the system is contradictory and it will undo itself. Very important points. I want to turn back to these Starbucks workers, these seven Starbucks workers in Memphis who were fired. I agree with you. I think, you know, hopefully that is the direction that the struggle, that consciousness overall in society is heading. And there have been some historic victories along the way that put workers in a better position to wage that struggle. I want to just read from the website of the National Labor Relations Board. This is an official government institution. So it says, you have the right to organize a union to negotiate with your employer over your terms and conditions of employment. This includes your right to distribute union literature, wear union buttons, t-shirts, or other insignia, solicit co-workers to sign union authorization cards and discuss the union with workers. Supervisors and managers cannot spy on you or make it appear that they are doing so, coercively question you, threaten you, or bribe you regarding your union activity or the union activities of your co-workers. You can't be fired, disciplined, demoted, or penalized in any way for engaging in these activities. Now, obviously, there's a difference between what's written down in law and what actually takes place in practice. And the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is far from a perfect institution. But the fact that this institution exists and the fact that this legal right at least exists on paper, which is important, is the result of a historic wave of struggle that was led by radicals, led in large part by people who actually oppose the system of capitalism itself. And I, I think that's very important history for listeners to know about. Talk a little bit, if you would, about how this right to organize a union was won in the first place in the 1930s. Well, I'd be glad to. And the history is absolutely important and a, a way to understand all of these things, including what we're going to have to do now under the changed circumstances. History is the guide. Well, let's go back. In 1929, the capitalist system here in the United States crashed. We called it in those years the Great Crash of October 1929. The economy went into free fall. By 1933, three years plus into this depression, the official unemployment rate in the United States was 25%. That is roughly five to six times worse unemployment rate than we have in our country right now. Just to give you an idea, if one quarter of your labor force is out of work, it means every single family, every family had somebody in it who was unemployed. Mama, Papa, 
cousins, aunt, uncle, somebody, and in many, many families, more than one. In those days, there was no unemployment insurance, so whatever member of the family was out of work, that person had to lean on all the rest of the people whose jobs were insecure to make up for the income they weren't earning, to pay for the food they kept eating, the clothing that they kept wearing, the shelter that they kept sleeping under, etc., etc. It was a time of unbelievable economic suffering. If you've never read the novels, say, of John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men, read it sometime. It'll give you a dramatic understanding. Steve Martin made a great movie that too few people have seen called Pennies from Heaven, which also explains what it was like in the Great Depression. And the workers in those years behaved in a way that Americans today might find arrestingly different. They went sharply to the political left. That's where they went. First of all, they decided to join unions by the millions. These were people who had never been in a union before. These were people whose parents had never been in a union before. They joined because they had the idea I'll get through this horrible depression in better shape if I'm in a union working with other workers than if I try to make it all happen on my own as an individual. We also had huge numbers of people joining two different socialist parties here in the United States and a communist party. And together, the communists, the two socialist parties, and the union movement, then called the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, they were a formidable force. They represented tens of millions of Americans who could and did vote. So when they went to the government and said, you got to do something, the government had to listen. If the president of that time, a middle-of-the-road Democrat, like not so different from a Joe Biden, but then it was a guy named Frank Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If he hadn't listened to those workers, those mobilized, organized, working class people allied with left-wing political parties, if he hadn't listened to them, he knew what the result would be. They didn't even have to threaten him. He knew they wouldn't vote for him. And he wouldn't be president very much longer. So he understood the harsh reality of counting votes. And guess what a mobilized working class in America could get? And if you're not familiar with this history, it's precisely because of what they were able to get then. Number one, the social security system. All those unemployed, squeezed families, they couldn't take care of their elderly, the ones who had given a lifetime of work and now wanted to retire in their final years. They became a burden on the rest of the family just when the family couldn't carry it. You get that picture in John Steinbeck's novels brilliantly. And so they got a social security system. The government, at a time when they didn't have any taxes because nobody was working, because the economy was depressed, they got the government to commit 
to giving every person 65 years of age or older a check every month for the rest of his or her life. Wow. They got unemployment compensation. You lose your job, you're going to get money every week from the government for a year or so to help tide you over till you could find another one or at least make your life easier. They got the first minimum wage in the country's history right then in the middle of the Depression. And they got a federal jobs program that put 15 million unemployed people back to work, getting an income, making their monthly mortgage payments to keep their home or paying their rent. And they won the National Labor Relations Act in the middle of the Depression, this powerful left-wing labor alliance. They got that law you just read to us, the right of workers without interference from the boss, can talk about a union, can wear a button showing that they are a union organizer, can do everything, you know, that is peaceful and appropriate to build a union, and the employer is forbidden by law from interfering. Nobody was naive. They all understood the employers would continue to look for and find ways of doing it anyway. And you know why? Well, that takes us back to the first minutes of this discussion when I stressed that it's as old as capitalism, this fundamental conflict between workers and employers. So, of course, it's always there, if not at the surface where you can see it and touch it, well, then right below the surface waiting to erupt on the next occasion. But the irony is, and you put it very well, that it was struggles in the past motivated by the same failures and flaws of capitalism that we see around us today that provoked the working class to rise up, to join the mass on the mass level, those unions and those left-wing parties, and to struggle with many, many strikes and many, many tough unionizing efforts to get into a position to get workers now at a Starbucks, people who may not know any of this history because it is so rarely taught in our schools, and yet they are struggling at Starbucks, standing squarely on the shoulders of workers who struggled in the past to get them to the point where they can struggle further now. Thank you, Professor Wolf. We are running short on time, but I wanted to ask one final question. I mean, I think a a relevant tactical difference between the situation now and the situation then is that in the 1930s, during the heyday of the CIO, for instance, organizing drives tended to be at large industrial enterprises where hundreds or thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of workers worked. The Starbucks workers now, even though Starbucks is, of course, a gigantic multinational corporation that employs tens of thousands of workers, the actual shops that we're talking about, the actual stores are quite small. I mean, there might be only a couple dozen workers working there. That's true, generally speaking, of the service industry. It's a much bigger challenge uh, when you're talking about organizing service industry workers as opposed to workers in, you you could say, basic industries. Talk a little bit about that challenge and, and how it might be overcome. Yes, it's a fascinating story. You know, it's capitalism that made this all happen. It was capitalists who, having 
been confronted by their unions in the old days when the United States was a manufacturing economic system and had loads and loads of factories, when things like automobiles and steel and all of that were the core of our industry, capitalists confronted workers who fought hard and got higher wages. And that was good for the workers, but as I pointed out at the beginning, it squeezed the profits of the capitalists, which is why they fight the workers all the time. So the capitalists came up with a solution. If they can't prevent the American worker from getting a decent wage to have a decent life, well, then they're going to respond to the worker by leaving the United States. And they did that in massive numbers, starting particularly in the 1970s. They moved production, the automobile, the steel, the you name it, out of the United States to places like India and China and Brazil, where the wages are much, much, much smaller. And that's why they did it, because they could get away with paying much less, and that boosted their profits. And what they didn't get by moving, they got by what's called automation, replacing high-wage workers with machines. So where was the future of the American working class? In the things that couldn't move. The services, you can't move the service to China because we're here, we're not there. So it has to be here. If you want a coffee, someone has to make it for you here if you're going to buy it commercially. So the services can't move. And so the capitalists said, well, we can't replace the workers in a service industry by moving abroad, and we can't replace them so well by machines. Service is service. Someone cuts your hair, someone waits on your table, whatever it is. And so the new industry that could grow in this country were service industries where the workers hadn't been before, where the unions hadn't grown. And the capitalists took advantage of the difficulty of a small shop scattered, of the lack of familiarity, of the fact that the union movement had been built up mostly in manufacturing. So they ripped these workers off. They're still doing it. But you can't do it forever. And what you're seeing now is the delayed but therefore all the stronger catching up of the service working class to do for them what the manufacturing workers did for themselves before. We're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Richard Wolff. He's the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, including The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and Understanding Marxism. You can check those out and all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support, encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.